Hello, and a warm welcome to our first instalment of Conversations in Drug Development, brought to you by the team at Boyd's. This podcast is for our fellow community of scientists and clinicians working in the wonderful world of cell and gene therapy and drug development. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy the conversation. My name is Dr. Julie Warner, Vice President of Regulatory Affairs at Boyd's, and I'm your podcast host for today's episode. We're going to be focusing on the field of regulatory affairs, specifically recent trends in oncology drug development. And I'm delighted to say I'm joined today by Dr. Catherine Bowen, Senior Director, who's also part of the Boyd's Regulatory Affairs team. So welcome, Catherine. Thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you very much for having me, Julie. Um, This is one of my favourite topics to talk about. Um, So I'm very excited to be here today. Good. And I know we could wax lyrical about this subject for a long time. Oh, we could. Yeah. yeah. We've got to try and rein ourselves in today, I think, Julie. We have indeed. Mm -hmm. So I I will start the stopwatch. So I think we've seen a lot of evolution in this field over the last 20 to 30 years. So maybe just to set the scene, could you touch upon some of the key shifts that we've seen take place? Yeah, absolutely. Let's start with a bit of a history lesson. So if we think back to 20 or 30 years ago, if you're diagnosed with with cancer, you're pretty much going to get cytotoxics. So the real sledgehammer approach to, to treating cancer. But more and more, particularly over the last 20 years or so, we've moved towards a much more targeted approach Um, including products that are now completely um, site agnostic and are purely based upon on biomarkers. CAR-Ts have started to come through and actually many tumour types now have multiple treatment options, several lines of therapy that they can, can progress through. And actually, many products have multiple indications. So I think Gleevec was one of the first. But mm-hmm. Keytruda, for example, I think it now, the list of indications must run to well over a page, <laughs> I'd have thought. Um, and a trend towards uh, combinations of different products being used in different lines of therapy as well. Certainly, yeah. Yeah, and uh, there's, a, there's a lovely article looking at FDA approvals over the um, kind of 2000 through 2022. And about a third of the oncology FDA approvals were actually combinations. So, so a trend towards those. Historically, we've seen a lot of accelerated approvals, particularly in the US. So for those of you who are not au fait with uh, these kind of regulatory terms, that, that's where there's an earlier approval of a drug for a serious condition based on a surrogate endpoint, but then there needs to be a confirmation of benefit. And in Europe, I guess the parallel would be con- conditional marketing authorisation, which is a similar kind of concept. But the idea is that you could confirm benefit, and um, that hasn't always happened. There's two of my favourite regulatory <laughs> colloquialisms. I know Julie loves these. Dangling approvals. So these are approvals where the benefit hasn't been confirmed, uh, but they remain on the market. And delinquent, um, where, where milestones have been missed. So those, those studies to confirm benefit haven't happened. And we've historically seen some misalignment between major agencies as well. There are differences between labels for it, for the US and the EU. In fact, just, just recently, um, CHMP issued a, a negative opinion, which is being re-examined at the moment for a product for non-small cell lung cancer with KRAS G12C mutations. But that, that was granted accelerated approval in the US. So we've got this background of a real trend towards more targeted therapies and previously an awful lot of it based on preliminary evidence. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think it's there's a couple of things there that are really interesting. I think the, the increase in combination approvals is really mm. quite fascinating because it introduces quite a few challenges for developers, doesn't it? Because in terms of being able to show the contribution of the different components can make your studies quite complicated. Yeah, So absolutely. a lot to consider, really. Yeah. So what does this mean for how the regulatory pathway for oncology products needs to look in this day and age? It's obviously going to mean some significant changes for companies. Yeah, I think that's a that's the really important question. I, I think it's fair to say that the goalposts are probably moving. Mm-hmm. And there's a few really tangible examples of it. You and I, and I talk an awful lot about Project Optimus. We do. We do, uh, which is an FDA initiative that's all around dose finding for oncology medicines. So if we think back to that cytotoxic sledgehammer approach, dose finding will be based around maximum tolerated dose. So push the dose as high as you possibly can before your patients keel over and that's what you treat them with. And quite often those doses remained through development. Well, that paradigm just doesn't work Mm -hmm. when you're talking about really targeted therapies. So Project Optimus is all about getting um, oncology developers to think more about the totality of the data. So taking all of the pharmacokinetic, pharmacodynamic and pharmacogenetic data and bringing that all together to really do proper dose finding and then to confirm that ideally actually in, in, in parallel studies. So And I haven't always worked in oncology, although it's a major area. It starts to sound a little bit like dose finding that other therapeutic areas do. So perhaps oncology in that particular area is no longer quite as different. And it is quite a a change in changing way of thinking about it I think for an awful lot of companies and at the moment we're seeing comments come back around dose finding but not necessarily seeing studies not getting approved but over time this is going to start to filter more and more through into oncology development and I think become a, a, a much bigger area for those early phase studies to consider. Mm-hmm. We also talked we mentioned the delinquent and danglers this whole great <laughs> great terms I was very happy when I came across those uh, for the first time. There is this trend towards potentially not being able to confirm benefit. Once something's out on the market, obviously it's going to be more difficult to conduct a big phase three study. And this isn't just applicable to oncology, to be fair. This is across the board for accelerated approvals, but really most noticeable for oncology, I'd say. So an FDA have been working an awful lot to look at ways of ensuring that that confirmation of benefit does happen and that accelerated approvals in the oncology space are, 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 are doing the right things. They're approving the right products at the right time for the right patients. So there's recently been a, a draft guidance come out specifically around this. And it, it kind of gives the impression that single arm trials may potentially not be as acceptable as mm-hmm. they have been in the past. I think it rather depends on the the exact tumour location and what's available on the market. But there is a move towards perhaps even for that initial accelerated approval, having some kind of a comparison in there and thinking really carefully about then what your endpoints would be. But also a real focus on how do you then confirm the benefit? How do you make sure that phase three study actually gets completed and you get the data that you need? Now, 
Julie, I think you and I have both had conversations with European regulators previously. I don't know. What are your thoughts? <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think it's really interesting. I think especially um, in going back to the Project Optimus dose determination discussion, I think this is really interesting because I think there's a lot of scope there for developers to be lulled into a false sense of security. Mm. Because when, like you said, when you may get comments back from FDA on the design of your study and the dose levels, but you won't necessarily get your IND put on hold or not, not be allowed to proceed. It's not necessarily a safety thing, is it? Yeah. And when yeah. you look at the grounds for being put on clinical hold, mm. it largely is for safety reasons or reasons related to that, not necessarily related to the ultimate utility of the data for further development. So it's tempting to think, oh, we didn't get any pushback from FDA on the dose levels that we're planning to study, but you maybe still could have done more. It's just that FDA didn't have a mechanism to be able to talk to you about it in, in that degree. Um, and certainly, you know, looking to the conduct of some oncology indications, I know we've got a separate podcast on this as well, thinking about AI, but I know there's a certain moves towards synthetic control arms, mm-hmm. um, perhaps replacing those kind of historical control arms that we used to talk about. So I think there's still a lot going to change in this space. And certainly, I think the European regulators are... It's starting to change position as well. I think discussions at CHMP are probably going to evolve a little bit as well, because obviously the regulatory framework in Europe is a little different for conditional approvals versus accelerated approval in the States. And so... It would be interesting to see if there's any kind of harmony that comes out of out of that. Yeah, I, I find it really interesting because I've I've done submissions for conditional authorization, and um, it's one of the first things the European regulators have always asked mm-hmm. from my experience is, well, what's the status of your phase three study? When are we going to get that data? So. For me, it's not that dissimilar to some of the conversations we've had previously. And of course, we've always had one year renewal periods for for conditional authorizations in Europe. Yeah. Um, And EMA issued a a draft reflection paper around single arm trials recently as well, which fundamentally, again, if you've done submissions or had conversations around single arm trials, there's probably no massive surprises in there. But you can't think of it as a quick and dirty way to get your data. You still have to really think think about how you're controlling if you're going to be using historical controls why how are they relevant um, and ensuring that your stats are really tight around what success looks like so I think there are some are some real parallels to be drawn but how it all pans out over time is going to be really interesting to see and one of the other things about having just an awful lot more products available is uh, when we come to talk about orphan designation I know mm. you have some views on this Julie I do. Yeah. And I think it's it's obviously some tumour types are now quite well served by available Mm. treatments. But that's that's not to say that there isn't an unmet need in pockets of those orphan diseases where patients may not be able to tolerate a certain therapy or may not be suitable for that therapy. They might be a bit frail, perhaps. So there's there's always, I think, an unmet need somewhere for a new product to come through. And in some spaces, we are seeing some quite crowded spaces, for want of a better term. We are seeing newer products come through that are unable to apply for orphan drug designation because data for some of the newer therapies, like the very specific advanced therapies and very uh, specific new antibodies, the initial response rates for patients are fantastic. They're so high. But what that does is raise the bar so much higher for a drug that's now coming in and needing to argue significant benefit, even based on theoretical information, in order to get that orphan designation and access those incentives, such as the fee reductions for scientific advice. So if you are a small company 
Um, it can be quite hard to kind of tease out that space and work out that you're generating data in the right clinical setting to be able to support an orphan drug designation and get access to those incentives early on, even if you then move to a different line of therapy later on. So it's, it's, it's one of those nuances. You know, the regulation, the orphan regulation was written 23 years ago now. So things have changed quite considerably. Um, and mm. I know we're looking at some potential changes coming through in the next two or three years, but I don't think anything is going to materially change at that on that front at the moment. So it'll be interesting to see how, how it develops. I think yeah. you made a, a really nice point there about sometimes smaller companies and the additional challenges and I think that's across the board in some of this now I think oncology has become more complicated mm-hmm. and you and I have spoken a lot about Project Frontrunner just Julie. a bit yes a little bit <laughs> yes which I think fundamentally we both agree is it's, a it's a really good idea isn't absolutely it? Yeah. yeah so th- this is the FDA's move to try and take some really promising medicines so that they're coming in earlier in development. So rather than this paradigm of you kind of start at the very end in patients who've got no choices, allowing those more promising medicines to be used and in earlier lines of therapy, which I think is fantastic. But I think the how you actually go about doing that, the kind of studies that you'll need to do, the kind of evidence that you're going to need to make those, mm-hmm. those leaps into earlier line therapy is going to be really complex to work through potentially. And actually, we still don't quite know how the CHMP and the EU regulators are going to view it. So that's going to be really interesting to watch as it starts to expand out. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think it's such a fantastic initiative because it's it's going to mean that patients can perhaps have a targeted treatment earlier in their treatment line when mm. they're perhaps less ill. So the potential there for benefit is absolutely phenomenal on the backdrop of less toxicity. But I think for developers, I think what it does introduce is perhaps the need to conduct larger studies earlier in development, because as we know, the higher up the treatment line you go, generally the expectations for a randomised controlled trial increase, and you maybe have uh, issues associated with the cost of supply of the drug, and you know you might need a larger sample size in the study, you might need a larger trial to be able to show that significance on the primary endpoint. So lots of challenges, I think. And Yeah, and then you combine those with the need it? for more dose finding and if you're yeah. in combination contribution of effect accelerated approval and that confirmation of benefit you mm. do one trial with an early endpoint you do an adaptive design with interims all of those things become really quite complex in a way that I don't think we were thinking necessarily even well kind of five ten years ago absolutely yeah but a brilliant initiative absolutely yeah totally agree yeah so in terms of the regulatory incentives, we've touched on a, a couple of those in terms of what's available through um, orphan drug designation, but there are a couple of other initiatives at the US level with FDA. Mm. Should we talk about those? Yeah. Um, in Orbis is one that we've yes. chatted about a few times. So Project Orbis is uh, it's led by the FDA and it's a way to try and share reviews to some extent. So the FDA with other regulators globally to try and speed up oncology approvals. And, and on the face of it, it, it does seem to be working pretty well. The feedback seems to be really positive. If you look at the timelines for approvals coming along for those products that have gone through it, um, they do seem to be faster mm-hmm. a- a- across the board than you would get if you were to go agency by, by agency. So potentially some, some real benefits for sharing across across regions there. So a, 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 a very nice 
thing to have come through. Absolutely. Yeah, and we've, we've seen recently the MHRA, obviously, launched yeah, MHRA, the International Recognition yeah. Procedure, which yeah, is have. very welcome as well, isn't it? Obviously not oncology specific, but... Uh, well, and they welcome. are part of Orbis as they well. They are indeed. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and obviously there are other um, general incentives not specific to oncology drugs as well, like priority medicines, breakthrough therapy, mm-hmm. fast track. And again, we could probably do a whole separate <laughs> podcast like topic should, on this. I feel like we should do a whole separate podcast because those things, and they're not specific to oncology, although in reality, they are quite often used in that space. And I think like an awful lot of regulatory processes, designations, the key with those is really for them to be for the, the right product at the right time in development with developers who really need to carve a new path you need to have those conversations for us to to really glean the, the most value out of them but for some products i think yeah absolutely worth the discussion and i do think that we should have a whole chat around all of the regulatory acronyms on <laughs> i'm sure we can bamboozle everybody we can, we can use a lot of acronyms <laughs> absolutely and i know one area of uh, development where we've seen an awful lot of change especially in the last two or three years um is on the pediatric development mm. front and all of the requirements and obviously we've had the european pediatric regulation for oh, crumbs 17 years now probably is it really that long I don't know, I feel old. 2006, I think. Yeah, I think I did my first one in... Yeah. Oh. Oh. Let's not go there. Let's not go there. (laughs) Um, But I think we've had some changes in the US recently, haven't we, which are starting to impact. Yeah, yeah, we have. Um, So... I think across the board, we can probably say that the the paediatric legislation hasn't necessarily delivered what everyone was hoping it would in terms of getting more medicines. And there are still some paediatric tumours that are, are woefully underserved, but paediatric oncology is really quite different to adult oncology. So in, in the US... There has been a change in approach now with the Race for Children's Act. Um, So this is all around ensuring that if you have a mechanism of action that is potentially of interest for paediatric tumours, that there is a plan to develop in those indications, even if they don't necessarily align completely with what you're doing in adults. And and there is the crux. Mm -hmm. In Europe, and if you look back at the the paediatric addendum to the oncology guidelines dated, what, is it 2003? I think so. I'm sure there must yeah. be an update of that plan. They're updating the main oncology guideline at the moment anyway, aren't they? But um, that's all around looking really, really early at in vitro and in vivo data, trying to identify and essentially prioritise targets for studies in children. But it has meant that there's this this kind of dichotomy slightly. In, in Europe, I think, for, for some, you can still get a waiver based mm-hmm. on your adult indication. It's all based around your measure higher level term. But that's not necessarily now going to be the case in the US with the Race for Children's Act. And then there's this whole strategic element of it as well, that if you're going to have to do something for the US, actually do want an agreed PIP in Europe and to try and get some of the rewards for it. The other thing that's really caught a couple of people out, historically, products with orphan drug designation have been exempt from PREA requirements, didn't have to Mm -hmm. do anything from a paediatric perspective. That's now gone away for oncology products. So if your target is on that molecular targets list, it doesn't matter if you have orphan designation. I think that is something that's caught a couple of people by surprise. And then, of course, we have this constant issue with the timing of things as well, which isn't, I mean, it's not specific to oncology. And again, could probably be the topic of a whole other discussion. (laughs) It could. 
But theoretically in Europe, PIP should be going in at the end of your phase one studies in adults, whereas you've got to, was it 60 days after your end of phase two meeting in the US? So thinking through what the best way is of having those conversations with both regulators if you are on this molecular targets list, or if you're in a grey area somewhere and need to just think it all through, that takes a fair amount of planning, which I think the regulators realise, and the FDA have put type F meetings Yes, in place. There's common commentary meetings between the PDCO and the FDA where they try and discuss particular topics where there could be discrepancies. So I think that that that, that is a move, but certainly paediatrics is if anything, got more complicated, more complicated rather than less, I think. Uh, Rightfully so. I mean, we should be trying to deliver medicines for children. Absolutely. And I think probably more complicated in a way that we didn't envisage. I think if I if yeah. I thought of, think yeah. back five years and thought of anything getting more complicated, it would have been Europe rather yeah, than the US. Yeah, I'd have flipped it. Yeah, I would. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's definitely very interesting. I think what, what we are seeing is a bit more flexibility from the FDA side in terms of a stepwise approach. So they're mm-hmm. happy with you as long as you set out a plan for what you'll be doing and when you'll be going back to them with a bit more information and what you might be able to do in terms of addressing paediatric um, unmet needs, then they are willing to do that. I think there is a, there's a stepwise approach has always been recognised in Europe, but I think it's always taken... Well, there's a pilot it's, now, isn't there? Yeah. But there I, is I, a pilot on it and I'm still a bit... Same here. Yeah, I, th- I think it's, I, I don't know, I think there's there's probably a bit of wariness in terms of how much commitment you're going to be held to. Yeah. Um, because there isn't any kind of formal process for at what point you can go in with certain amounts of information. And like you say, it's still a pilot, so we'd still need to see how that pans but, you know, out. That's been the challenge, not just in mm-hmm. oncology, across the board in paediatrics, that you're trying to think through all of this plan for paediatric patients, often particularly, again, for smaller companies when yeah. they haven't even thought through what they're going to do in, in phase three for adults. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, particularly with all this additional complexity that's being built in as, as you know, all the, all the other changes that we've discussed today. Yeah, absolutely. So obviously that's that's a nutshell of development in 30 years, <laughs> <A> nutshell, <laughs> 30 years of development in a nutshell. So where do you think things will head in the future for oncology? I think there's, there's lots of things potentially out there on the horizon that could have quite an impact. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And I... I think things are going to continue to develop. I don't think targeted therapies are going away and I think Mm -hmm. we're going to continue to see those and the outcomes from from front run as well, perhaps starting to see them come through into earlier phases of development. There's the question of how AI and machine learning, I don't feel we can get through a whole podcast at the moment without mentioning (laughs) Mentioning. those. They they feel like they're everywhere at the moment and a topic of another Boyd's podcast. But there's, there's going to be an element to play into that, particularly for small molecule programs. We've already started seeing AI and machine learning starting to influence products that are coming through into development and p- p- potentially significantly accelerating that time from candidate selection to clinic and perhaps starting to address some of these issues somehow around dose and confirmation of, of effect and all of these things. From a, a product perspective, um, starting to see CRISPR technologies come through in, across several indications um, with all the associated issues around that. Circulating DNA, ctDNA, I find very interesting. Already uh, companion diagnostics, but there's a, there was an FDA paper, and I can't remember the date on it, suggesting that at some point that this could even be a, a marker for efficacy. So something else to tell um, early efficacy. At the moment, we tend to use objective response rate. Um, mm. A long way of being validated, but, you know, an awful lot less invasive than biopsy. So that yeah. could be could be really interesting. 
in Europe, there's the... Joint Clinical Assessment. Thank you very much. (laughs) I can never remember the words. Thank you, Julie. So around HTA assessments, so for oncology, MAAs, that's going to come into force from January 2025. Yes. Yeah, and that that's, I think, going to require some, some changes in thinking as well, as if all this regulatory stuff wasn't enough. Absolutely. I think it's, and again, thinking, I know we keep talking about small companies, but a lot of the time... Mm this innovation does often originate in small companies. It may not always stay there, but it originates there. And I think many of those companies have exit strategies at the end of phase one or often at the end of phase two. And there's a tendency, I think, or a temptation to think that some of these issues are going to be someone else's issues if they're a phase three thing. But a lot of these initiatives that we're seeing now are going to require that thought process to occur earlier in the development programme. Even if nothing is done about it, I think there will need to be an awareness that this is a requirement and perhaps some work done to sow the seeds ready for whoever ultimately buys the product or the company to start to build upon. So they might want to see some of that groundwork done in advance. And like you say, it's trying to shoehorn that into Mm. everything else that's going on when you're trying to set up and deliver your phase one. You may be starting to think about your paediatric strategy or drafting an orphan drug designation application. There's there's lots going on, I think, all around that time. So it's it's a lot more to be prepared for, I think. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. But incredibly exciting. And I think Mm. some of the developments that we've spoken about today and the way in which regulators are thinking about this space, there's there's a whole wealth of opportunities that I think are ultimately going to serve the patient. So really, really exciting area to be in. Absolutely. And I'm sure it's going to continue to evolve. Oh, absolutely. We'll be back. We'll be back. We'll be back. We'll be back. And of course, the best thing you can do if you're uncertain is... Is, is to ask the ask regulators. The regulators. Yeah. 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 I feel that's our, that's our job, isn't it? To endorse that side of things <laughs> well, as regulatory app- people. It's... Appropriately ask the regulators at the right time with a decent exactly. strategy. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, thanks ever so much, Catherine. I think it's been a really interesting discussion, as always. So looking forward to uh, watching how things evolve in this space. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Julie. Thank you for listening to Conversations in Drug Development, the podcast series brought to you by the team at Boyd's. Don't forget to follow us on the usual podcast platforms or visit our website to ensure you don't miss out on any of our future episodes.